Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so we were talking about um, schedules, re- schedules of reinforcement, started to talk about that, and I was talking about... Um, how you could give a reinforcer after every behavior you are interested in, so everything you wanted to become more likely. Uh, and that's called continuous reinforcement, or CRF, and it's not used very often. Um, and the reason is it doesn't, behave, it doesn't maintain behavior very well, and I use the example, I believe, of, you know, if I was paid after every single lecture, and then one day they forgot to pay me, I'm going to think that, well, the contingencies aren't active anymore, Right? Same thing with a rat pushing a bar. If the rat gets a, a, a pellet for one, this is going to be my way, for one, every time it hits the bar, it gets a pellet. It's, uh, what it's learned is one push gives a pellet. Now it gives one push gets nothing. That's going to be put, you want to think of sort of almost in the squirrel of Wagner type terms. That's very surprising. It's going to learn a lot. It's going to learn very quickly that one push means no pellet, right? So this doesn't maintain behavior very well, and you know this again if you've, if you've trained your dog uh, to pee outside, right? So usually reinforcement's given on schedules. Uh, these were all discovered by Skinner and his colleagues uh, and published in a... In a if you think conditioned reflexes was a boring book, wait till you check out Schedules of Reinforcement by First Grade Skinner. A book about that thick that just lists schedules of reinforcement. There's like four I'm going to tell you about that really matter. Well, well, and CRFs, that's five, and then two, okay, seven is probably the most we're going to do. <laughs> but there's hundreds of them. And um, when you do your PhD, one of the things ever your comprehensive exams. Okay? So, your comps. And oftentimes, depending where you are, this involves writing a bunch of really big papers and stuff like that. At, at U of T, they're, they're a little more humane. And what we had to do was we had a reading list that was assigned to us by our PhD committee. And you had to read all this stuff. And then you had like a three or four hour oral exam on the material. So, I had like 55 articles and books to read. Everything from Somebody's engineering master's or PhD thesis from MIT about how robots could sense space. Given me by Ken Cheng. To um, a lot of articles that I actually only read before. To the book Schedules of Reinforcement. It's the only thing I didn't read. I just didn't read it. It's like, I'm not reading that. Um, I got asked no questions about it. I think they just assumed that I knew that stuff and I got to the interesting stuff anyway. But I did, I remember I took it out of the library, and it's, 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 a, it's, like, it's like a textbook. It's textbook thick in size, and it's just about schedules of reinforcement. So I don't suggest, if you go to graduate school, not doing your homework, but that was one case where I thought, look, I know, I know what a fixed interval is. I'll be fine. Right? So the fixed interval schedule, for example, is the first response after a given time interval is rewarded. And what you get with that is something called an FI scallop. I think it's called a scallop because it's kind of shaped like a scallop shell, see? It's like, you know, a scallop shell, like a shell 
gas station. That's a scattered shot. So, so let's see the pen's gone back down. It comes across. The picture's cut off, it looks like. And the little dashes here are when reinforcement's given. So it's the first response after a given amount of time has elapsed since the last reinforcer. It is not the it is not the animal gets reinforced every like an FI thirty because usually seconds is the first response that happens as long as thirty seconds has elapsed since the last reinforcement. It's not giving reinforcement every thirty seconds. That's actually a new thing for the classical conditioning. If the animal doesn't have to respond just every, you know, first, just just, just uh, reinforce after thirty seconds, right? So, even if the animal waits, let's say it's an FI thirty, and the animal waits two minutes before it responds, that's still an FI thirty. The animal eventually learns to peck right around thirty seconds. The one where you did, where you just reinforced every 30 seconds, that'd be like, that's called a fixed time, an FT30, which really is just classical conditioning. Because the animal isn't required to respond, is it? And remember, operant conditioning involves the animal operating on its environment. Respondent conditioning, as Skinner termed it, or Pavlovian conditioning, or classical conditioning, to call it today, is that the, the, the environment operates on the animal. Right? That's the big difference. So what do you think you could use this to measure? Like, what would you interpret this as? Now, Skinner, by the way, would not interpret it as anything. The Skinner people said, when you do this, you get that. Next. Okay, they don't talk about internal mental events. They are epiphenomena. But, I like internal mental events. If it weren't for them, I wouldn't have a career. So animals have internal mental events. Um... What do you think we could measure with something like this? Like, what do you think we could, we could do research on? We're just using the FI schedule. Think about it. What's the animal doing here? It's responding a whole lot. Look at how it sort of peaks up right around the time when the reinforcement's going to be given. This isn't that hard, guys. Come on. You're overthinking it. Or you're not thinking at all. It's this one, it's one or the other. I think you're overthinking it, though. Would it reflect the speed with which it learns? Your behavior? With, 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 yeah, the speed with which it learns, you say? Yeah. Well, spawns. Well, we're. Remember, this is being done at steady state. Like, it's already acquired the whole thing. Um. You could look at speed. There's a better schedule to look at how quickly they can, how fast they can pack in a unit of time. So this is the first. Remember, it's the first. What's reinforced is the first response after a given amount of time has elapsed. This show tried. Come on, somebody. I'm gonna pick somebody in a second. Because this is not that you're really. Oh, you must be overthinking this. Or it's just so obvious to me because I've taught this course so many times. The first response after a given unit of time has elapsed. What do you think the animal's doing? 
was it keeping track of? I yelled time. Yes, thank you. Um, so we're looking at the animal's ability to have a, the animal's internal clock over for short intervals. Not, not like, you know, you might have heard me in other classes, and I think in this class, I might have, um, about circadian timing, 24-hour timing. That's not what this is. This is short interval timing. But the ability to keep track of time is something the animal should be able to do. Did I not say earlier in the course that Wundt talked about the concepts of time and space and how animals should be able to deal with that? I did. Right? So this is a way we can test the accuracy of an animal's internal clock. And it's actually getting pretty good here. Right? Look, where the, look where the peak place of responding is. Peak, sorry, peak time of responding. It's right before the reinforcement's given. Now, you might say, well, obviously, Dave, it's not going to keep pecking here because it's got to start, it's got to eat. But notice how it ramps up. What you can do is, once the animals learn this, is every so often throw in what's called an empty trial. So you don't reinforce them. So you don't reinforce them. So let's say it's an FI-30. Just leave the damn light, let's say it's a pigeon. Just leave the damn light on for, I don't know, two minutes. It'll eventually stop responding. Now the nice thing again about partial reinforcement, like a schedule like this, is that the animal is going to keep responding on the next trial because, you know, it might sort of... That's the way it's worked all along, is partial reinforcement. So what you get in those cases is you, if, if you do a bunch of these empty trials, so you get a whole bunch of these that look like this. And then they, they peck a whole lot and they just stop. And there's another trial that might look like this. There's one that look like that. And when you sum all these empty trials together, you get this really, really pretty graph. That looks like a normal curve. So there, and the peak time of responding is exactly at the FI. So if this was an FI-30, their peak time of responding is at 30 seconds. It's very cool. So you can tell that they're, they're good at keeping track of time. And you notice that now it's supposed to be a like normal distribution, so the error is actually symmetrical. So the distribution is symmetrical, so you get error that is proportionate to the amount of time being measured. So what's really cool is if we down this, if that's 30, that, then that's over here, zero, so that's going to be 10 here. So we'll put 10 here. If we also did the same animal on an FI 10, it's that wide. We get something like that. What happens here is, so 10, 30, let's do now 60. So now, what we get is we can actually graph out <clears throat> the peak time on one axis. Okay. And you can use standard deviation, any other measure of spread there. It doesn't matter. You can actually use a very crude measure called spread. It works just fine, which is just measuring the distance from the mean to the halfway up. You can use that. But you can use standard deviation, you can use variance. It doesn't really matter. And you actually get a straight line. So the error is proportional to the amount of time being measured, which actually shows that this follows Weber's law. 
if you are into psychophysics. Oh, that stupid Java bullshit. You know, you don't even need Java anymore. You literally don't. So that's really quite cool. It's actually very, very neat. And, by the way, this shows up cross-species. Every animal that's been tested in a timing paradigm has shown exactly the same sort of uh, normal distribution, has shown that it follows Weber's law of the whole thing. It's very neat. It's very neat. Uh, so, first work was done with rats, and then uh, there was work done with uh, pigeons, a lot of work with pigeons. Uh, it's been done with people. It's been done with black-capped chickadees. I do that one. Um, and the amazing thing is, unlike a lot of psychology, when we model things and we try to predict and we talk about how much variance we can explain, we can build a mathematical model and explain 99.99% of the variance. Ah! Take that, your 0.3 correlation personality people. <laughs> it's just pretty neat. Now, Skinner never said animals keep track of time. If you listen closely, you can hear Skinner spinning in his grave. He never said that. But clearly, that's what the animals are doing, right? And the cool thing is, if you did this, that's exactly what you did. That's, that's, the, that's one of the really nice things about this. Okay. Variable interval schedule. This is like the fixed interval, but the interval varies with a given average, and the scallop, of course, disappears. This is unpredictable. So it could be a VI 30, so it could be this trial is 15, next trial is uh, 45, then there's a 28, then a 32, then a 5, then a 55, then a 25, then a 35, then a 30, then a 2, then a 58. Those numbers, if I did that correctly, should average out to 30. And, yeah, they're still keeping track of time, I guess, probably, but really, frankly, what's happening here now is we have unpredictable but steady reinforcement. So with the, let's go back to the FI for a sec. Can you think of anything here that is like the daily life where you get reinforced for the first response after a given interval? So not, you know, animal timing and peak procedures with bad all. Not, not that kind of stuff, but just something daily life or fixed interval. I don't know, I think, oh, please, Daniel, yeah. Uh, it's a child that is looking for attention from their parent. Now, the thing is, that's interesting, because a lot of this stuff you can talk about, sort of child rearing, that kind of thing, and a lot of parents have been doing these things for millennia without realizing they're using schedules for enforcement, so I doubt about that. But do, you, do parents keep track of intervals? Because the parents would have to say, okay, I will give you... Uh, attention after the first time after 15 seconds. Maybe some do. Those are called kind of weird parents. <laughs> right? So there may be some, but probably not. This is actually kind of a hard thing to think of. The best example I can think of is I give you, you take stats class with me, I give you a quiz every week and a half. Your studying behavior is what I'm reinforcing. You know what the reinforcer is? The quiz. Reinforcers don't have to feel good. They just have to maintain behavior. Right? Giving quizzes 
every week and a half or two weeks like I do in, in 3256, really maintains studying behavior well. But in fact, it makes it peak the night before studying. Then I give you the reinforcer, which is a quiz. Ha <laughs> And your studying goes to a bit of a lull, doesn't it? Then it goes back up. That's a fixed interval. Variable interval would be, what do you think in daily life? Let's switch that around. That's pop quizzes. You ever had a class with pop quizzes? They have, they exist, right? Yeah. But it maintains studying behavior really nicely because it's totally unpredictable. It's totally unpredictable. I did, um, when I taught 2127, which was a long time ago, I used to give, um, uh, not pop quizzes, but in class uh, assignments that I just decided one day, I don't think I have enough to talk about today, so I'll make them do an assignment in class. And it, did, it ever make, did it ever maintain attendance well? Because there was no way you could make them up because you had to be in class that day. Yeah, unless you're sick, etc. Really maintained attendance, coming to class behavior. Right? And you can think about that. I know an intro psych, I know Lori teaches it. She does sort of pop quizzes, doesn't she? Right? And I think it maintains attendance a lot better than uh, not doing that. I know when I've taught intro, it's like, now there's two tests in a final. I don't care if you come. <laughs> um, I get paid the same if you come or you don't. So uh, I don't care. But I think she does a really good job maintaining attendance because people get, she gives these pop quizzes, which, again, I wouldn't do because I think it's too much work. You know? I mean, on my, my core, I really just want to sit at home and play video games and drink gin. Or Pernod. I think a lot of Pernod lately. Um, so there are things in life that are very motivable. Pop quizzes is one of my favorite examples. <clears throat> right. See how nice this maintains behavior? Nice steady state. Beautiful. So we can't really look at animal timing with a, with a variable schedule. Now, a fixed ratio is reinforcements given after a given number of responses. We get a little less of a smooth kind of set of responding here. We get what's called a post-reinforcement pause, and that's not just because the animal ate, by the way. It doesn't take, you can give like a couple seconds access to grain for a pigeon, and then it won't respond for four or five seconds. Then it just starts up again. And remember here, this isn't about time. This is, the ratio part is the ratio of responses to reinforcers. So like an FR30 is every 30th key peck, the pigeon gets some food. And we have this post-reinforcement pause. The post-reinforcement pause is bigger the bigger the FR. And you might think, well, yeah, it's tired after doing all these reinforcements. Actually, that's not what controls it. It's the present schedule that's controlling it, not what the schedule on the last trial. So it's almost like, it's almost like and I hate to anthropomorphize like this, but it's almost like the animal is taking a break and sort of working up the, you know, okay, well, that's, this is like 100 times this time, so I'm going to take a little break, then we'll start. Right. Example here, can you think of an example in daily life of a fixed ratio schedule? Does 
I can think of things like in school. Oh, go ahead, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, I was about to say, uh, fixed amount by a uh, fixed amount of time uh, allowance for chores. There you go. If you do the, if you, I don't know, let's think of something. If you've done, done the dishes five times, I'll give you a dollar. Like, I don't know what the going rate is. We you know, kids allowances. But, um, Actually, we did used to give Maddie an allowance. Not anymore, but I mean, we did, yeah, yeah, I forgot it. I totally forgot that. What used to give her? 30 bucks a month. When, when she was, you know, 12, 13, not like when she was four. She's turned out okay. Um, give John an allowance. Maybe I should. Anyway, I just I don't know what I'm thinking about parenting. It's horrible. I think I think the number of chores is not a bad thing there. That's not bad, right? Think of another one. Think of another one here. Remember, it's a fixed number, like fixed ratio. So it's a number of responses, and after an exact number, same number of responses all the time, like an FR thirty. So an FR thirty is every thirtieth response, the animal gets whatever. Brain, uh... Please go ahead. It's not well. I'm not sure. Like getting paid from a job. Yeah, that's always a hard one because pay for work. It depends on the kind of work you're doing. Uh, salaried work isn't like that, right? Even I mean, I am paid on the fifteenth and the last day of each month, but. I'm also paid if I'm on holidays. I'm paid if I'm sick. Uh, if it's if I'm off to a conference for a week, I still get paid. So, but but working like piecework kind of thing, I think probably is right. Like if you stuff this many envelopes, you get this much money. You know, like people that work. I made six hundred and eighty dollars last week from home on the internet. You know, those kind of things that are actually probably aren't true. Good. You have an idea? I'm just saying piecework. Yeah. Okay. So I think piecework is the one thing. Where you can, I think, but I mean that's it's not that common anymore. But it does happen, right? Oh, please go ahead. So it's here. I don't know if this is whatever. I was thinking like a kid, like they brush their teeth in the morning and at night, so it's like twice a day every day, and they get rewarded for brushing in the morning and at night. If you actually are rewarding them, yeah, okay. yeah. And again, the reward can be anything. It can be a pat on the head, as long as it maintains behavior. Like I said, giving pop quizzes maintains studying behavior beautifully. What can we study with the animals here? Animals ability to count. Keep track of number. So now variable ratio, this is the best. This really maintains responding. You never know when you're going to get this. This, and it's not about time now. It's about number. You never know when you're going to get anything. It just happens. This maintains behavior exceedingly well. So a VR twenty, you know, it can be ten and thirty and eighteen and twenty-two and twenty-five and fifteen and one and thirty-nine. All those together, those are all unpredictable. That's number of responses. That should average out to 20 if I did that properly. 
This is probably the best schedule for maintaining behavior. Can you think of any examples of this? Please. Well, I just remember when I was a kid, uh, if I would get an A on the test, sometimes my mom would take me for ice cream, and I always remembered that, so I always wanted that to happen. But it was never it was unpredictable. She didn't yeah, always. Yeah, it wasn't every time. It was just. Yeah, that's pretty good. Did your mom take a lot of psychology? No. I'll say it's intuitively. We've known this about these schedules for a long time. But one of the things, in fact, that, you know, in old parenting books used to say things like, don't praise your kid all the time. Praise him sometimes. That's a good example. Think of anything else. You ever watch people play a slot machine? That's exactly what that is. Slot machines are a variable ratio schedule machine. They're like pigeons pecking at keys, man. And they're just pumping in quarters or loonies at this point. Right? Pushing the button. Put another loony in. Push the button. Put another loony in. Push the button. Put another loony in. Push the button. Lights! Some loonies! Yeah. There's a lot of behaviors like this. A good video game does this. Yeah, a good video game does that. It can do it with save points that are unpredictable. You can do it with anybody here. Who here has an Xbox or a PlayStation? Yeah, few of us. What do you get with an Xbox or PlayStation? Uh, PlayStation. Okay, what happens in PlayStation sometimes when you do something? Oh, there are rewards. Yeah, what are they? Little trophies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Challenges. And what do you get in the Xbox? You get you get gamer points, which are you can exchange for absolutely nothing. But my score is twenty two thousand seven hundred. My goal in life is to always be ahead of Maddie. That's all it is. If, as long as I can do that, my in playing get games, I'm good. And they're unpredictable. You can actually sometimes go look up what they are. It kind of takes away from some of the fun. Um, but sometimes, and a lot of them will be hidden. Like 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 you can go look up. What do you get an achievement for us? It's called in the Xbox, or what do you get a trophy for? It's called in the, in the PlayStation. You can go look that up. That's fine. But there also are ones that say this is a secret achievement. Sleep's a question. I don't know what it'll be. I gotta keep playing so I can get those points that are completely and utterly meaningless. Right? And in fact, video game designers now literally do think about this. They think of when they think about things like achievements or trophies. And I'll just gonna say achievements. I don't play my PS3 very often. Um, Xbox Live achievements were developed by a guy named John Hobson who has a PhD in experimental psychology from Duke and John I met John at a video game conference um, he was giving a talk on, his, on, a, on a book he's written called Behavioral Game Design which is one of the bibles of game design because what you're doing is you're, you're using these principles of, of schedules of reinforcement to keep the player playing because if you keep the player playing, he or she's going to buy more games, going to maybe download, going to pay for some downloadable content, right? Tell their friends about how addictive this game is, and I can't get away, can't pull myself away. It's so much fun. So what happens is, well, I, was, I met John at this conference in Toronto, and I walked up to him and I, and I said, uh, "All right, yeah." I, I, I asked him uh, if I had recorded this talk, and I said, "Could I release it as a podcast? Would that be okay?" He said, "Yeah, sure, of course." And then I told him some of the stuff that I was working on. And then he said, your name's familiar. And I said, your name's familiar. 
And I said, where'd you do your PhD? And he said, Duke. I said, really? I had a job offer at Duke, but I turned it down. He said, I said, I would have been the replacement for Jenny Higa, who was leaving. He said, yeah, that was my PhD supervisor, the person who replaced Jenny Higa. I said, so you would have been my PhD student? <laughs> he said, yeah. Which, by the way, is ironic, because I didn't get into Duke for graduate school, but I was good enough to apparently supervise students for them, um, which I pointed out to the provost. Um, but we were talking about it, and I said, he said it was funny because all the people around the lab were saying, you weren't doing enough stuff on your research on you know, pigeons, but you're doing a lot of stuff writing this book about video game design. He said, I kept trying to explain to them that they were, he said, I, that's why I said, see, if, if I was there, I would, I would have said, fine, that's great, let's do your thesis on that. But I said, you know, it's used a lot, this kind of thing. You know, I, I, I can see it. I see it everywhere. I said, I see it at Xbox Live Achievements. And this big smile came across his face. He said, yeah, it was my idea. Because he works for Microsoft. And I said, uh, you know, all those are, are a variable, and we both said it at the same time, variable ratio schedule of reinforcement. Like, we both knew what it was. I mean, he knew because he had invented it. But, I mean, I, I spotted it right away. And it maintains behavior. Getting those stupid little things that say achievement unlocked. People will just hey, 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 hey. They'll keep playing and playing and playing and playing. Right? And like I said, a slot machine, a, a video poker machine, these are these are great for that. That's really what they are. That's really what they are. And when you think about things like, I mean, Deanna's example is great. Because that's exactly how you should praise your kid or give them a reward. There's nothing, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't be proud of your kid, you shouldn't say good job, but now and then give them something big. I know this sounds cold and calculating, but parents have been doing this forever. It maintains behavior so well. It maintains behavior so well. And it's actually easier than giving a reinforcement every time. If you were to give, if, if your mom gave you ice cream after every time you brought home an A, first of all, I'd probably have rotten teeth by now, <laughs> but it wouldn't mean anything to you anymore, would it, right? I mean, you, know, you wouldn't be opposed to it, but it wouldn't have the same sort of value, right? So it's actually easier to do this, to, and it maintains behavior better than any other schedule, than it is to follow your kid around like you see many parents do today, follow your kid around and constantly tell them that they're precious little snowflakes. My, my, my father gave me this positive reinforcement. He gave negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement is removing something that feels good. Well, actually, it was even worse than that. Yeah. I'm thinking of punishment, which we might get to today. Um, which doesn't make him behave very well. But it can, but it's very difficult to make it behave. So this is the neat thing about this. This is the, when you think about it from a practical standpoint, and the practical standpoint here is it literally is raising your kids. It's the ultimate. Or, or teaching people in a classroom. Right? The best way to maintain behavior is by now and then, unpredictably, giving reinforcers. It doesn't mean you have to be a cold bastard the rest of the time. That's not what I'm saying. Right? All right. Questions so far? It's pretty straightforward stuff, right? Okay. 
couple, few uh, sort of properties here. First of all, variable schedules are the most robust schedules. And this makes some sense because the reinforcement is unpredictable. The reinforcement is unpredictable. So you never know when one's coming, so you better keep responding. <clears throat> The other day I mentioned the partial reinforcement extinction effect. It's harder to extinguish responding on VI, FI, VR, and FR schedules than it is on CRF, continuous reinforcement. All right? Run for your lives. Um, the zombie apocalypse is here. You mean it wasn't here? Well, I think it... Yeah. No more screaming? Like, what is that? Negative reinforcement. I can't. None of that can be any good. I, I, that's just all I can say. If you can pick that up, if you hear that, my recorder picked that up. There has been screaming, not a lot. There it is again. <laughs> it all seems to be the same person, right? This is really, it's a little disturbing. I'm going to come back. I'm going to walk right back here. It's going to start again. Yeah. All right. We talked about this, like, and I, I think the book has a big, long thing about this, but just intuitively this makes a lot of sense. And cognitively it makes a lot of sense. Right? It's all about predictability. Did I just hear it again, or is now, now I'm hearing things? I think I'm just hearing things at this point. So cognitively, what the animal is doing is looking at ratios of or times. Um... And we want to think of it sort of in terms of surprise, kind of in a score of the Wagner fashion. We certainly can. In that case, it makes sense that CRF, once you have one or two or five or whatever empty trials, trials we get nothing, the animal stops responding. Right? Just makes sense. So, from a cognitive standpoint, the having to jump through hoops to explain this, you don't really have to anymore. At least to me. Now, is that a person? Or is that a monkey? <laughs> the heck is it? I'm just going to go take care of this. We should be fine. If he doesn't come back in five minutes, uh, answer your next. Um, I'm just more concerned that something bad's happening to somebody, you know? Yeah, but especially... Yeah, you wouldn't think. It sounds like a bat hit the floor or something. Yeah, it sounds like something fell to the ground. I know. It's like a scary movie. It sounds kind of like a temper tantrum, but... You're missing the pounding of the ground. Yeah, Brandon Shemp. It's, it's Brandon. Biologist works here, if you don't know. Maybe it's Brandon. 
That would be funny if it turned out it was just Brandon screaming because he didn't get a grant of some sort. Um, okay. Here's a hard schedule for an animal to learn. And again, people jump through hoops in the behaviorist kind of tradition trying to explain why it's hard. And in fact, if you think of this from an evolutionary or ecological or and cognitive uh, angle, it makes complete sense. It's differential, that's what D stands for, reinforcement for low rates of responding. So it works like this. If we, have, we give a, we could say, if the animal responds more than two times in 10 seconds, it doesn't get any food. But if it responds less than two times in 10 seconds, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't get food. So it's got to respond two times in 10 seconds. Obviously, that's going to be hard for the animal to learn, isn't it? That's going to be hard to learn, a DRL schedule. Because how, many, how often does it happen? Do we listen to the report? Yep. What is it? So the toddler and uh, okay. her mother. Okay, that's right. Every time she tries to put him in the buggy, he oh, screams. Okay, good. It's almost a Sunday. That's, that's just life, right? Yes. If any of us who have children or been on a lot of kids know, that's just life. Good. So we know at least it isn't some kind of shooting <laughs> or, or somebody being beaten to death or, you know, there's not going to be any ceremonies about that. You know, I don't want to... I've had enough of that for the last week or so. I don't need any more of that stuff, so, so that's so, good. As soon as the kid starts screaming, she stops. Puts them back down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's hard. I mean, I've been there. I've been there. Um, my kids weren't screamers much, but I've, I have... John can be. Um, but I sympathize. I'll say that. It's good. At least we know. So, DRL is really hard. So, if you like, again, you say... You basically give the animal, you show it like a key light, and it's on for 10 seconds, but if it responds more than two times, let's say, it doesn't get any food, but if it responds less than two times, it doesn't get any food. And people, the behaviorists jump through hoops, why is that so hard? And I think cognitively it makes complete sense why it's hard, and evolutionarily it makes sense. How often is, does it happen in nature that not responding a lot gets you something? Especially if it's food. It's pretty rare, right? Usually the more you do something, the better it turns out. So this is really hard for an animal to learn. This is especially hard for an animal to learn if you give it amphetamine. Yeah? Would it be the same with like, any, like three times, more or less, three times, more or less? Like it doesn't matter the number? No, no, it doesn't matter the number. It gets a little easier if it's like three versus two or five versus two because, I mean, you're responding a bit more. Yeah. But... Really low rates, like one or two times in 10 seconds. It's really hard for an animal to learn. And it's, like I said, exceedingly hard for an animal to learn if you give it amphetamine. Because they're like, <laughs> In fact, some of the cool stuff about drug tolerance um, and how the importance of learning in drug tolerance has been done with DRL schedules. You can't teach a rat a DRL schedule if you give it amphetamine. But if the rat has already learned the schedule and you give it amphetamine, it's fine. In other words, or if you give the rat experience with amphetamine and teach it a DRL schedule, it can learn it. It shows something that we call, in, in pharmacology, we call, or in psychopharmacology, we call behavioral tolerance. You learn how to behave normally when you're taking the drug. 
right? Those guys have taken Neurofarm with me know about this. So one of the things that happens is that drug addicts who are, you know, we can, we can explain a lot of a, a drug-taking behavior using these schedules, too. In fact, we can explain pretty much all drug-taking behavior using these schedules. The immediate thing right after doing the behavior is the reinforcement. So you put a needle in your arm and you immediately feel good. That's probably why you do it, right? It's got to be a pretty good reinforcing thing to put a needle in your arm. Um, but people learn how to live while taking drugs, right? If you didn't, like, somebody here probably smokes, um, but most of you don't. So if somebody here smokes as a cigarette just before they come to class, it's not a problem. If you don't smoke and you had a cigarette that came to class, you'd be in no trouble. You'd be woozy. Or if you've ever known somebody who's an alcoholic, and then they tell you that they're drunk all the time, like literally all the time, they get up and drink, and you go, I didn't really notice. No, I hide it well. No, they don't hide it well. They actually have what's called behavioral tolerance. And they learn how to do things while drunk, right? So DRL stuff is one of some of the first research that showed this behavioral tolerance thing. It's kind of cool. DRH is for high rates of responding. This is only limited by how quickly the animal can respond. So you couldn't do it, uh, like, you know, you've got to respond 10 times in one second. Well, most animals can't peck that quickly or push a bar that fast. But that's a lot easier to learn than a DRL schedule. A lot easier to learn the DRL schedule. So it's not the idea of the differential responding, it's the idea that low versus high rates is the issue. Okay. Questions? Good? Okay. Now, what you can do are what are called concurrent and chain schedules. A concurrent schedule is when you have two um, so you have two key lights in the, in the box and we'll say this one's going to be an FR10 this one's going to be an FR20 two key lights that's concurrent schedules and in fact not that this is anything close to daily life, but it's a little more like daily life when you make choices to do things. Um, it could be guided by, in fact, it is guided by, the schedule of reinforcement, the schedules of reinforcement that are active. So a concurrent schedule, what do you think would happen in that case, by the way? With an FR20 on one key and an FR10 on the other key, what do you think would happen? Two keys in front of the animal that are equally available, you know, they're just literally left and right side of the animal's head. They're easy to get at, so there's nothing, no traveling around or anything like that. How do you think the animal is going to do you think he's going to pack more here or here? So the FR10 or the FR20? The 10, yeah. Do you think he's going to pack it all to the FR20? Mm -hmm. 
Do they try it? They won't just stick to the FR10. That's, that's in fact, and in fact, that sort of almost seems like the logical thing to do, but that's not what they do. What they do is they distribute their behavior in a ratio consistent with the ratio of the two of, the, of, of reinforcements, the two schedules. So they'll, for every two packs here, there'll be one pack here. It's called the matching law. And what they do then is they match the, the ratio of, of responding to the ratio of reinforcement. So that's actually what they end up doing is they, 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 they their behavior they distribute like this. And it's, you might think at first like it seems like Victoria, what well, you said that's why would you keep after one time of getting a reinforcer learning what the schedule is or after they didn't learn totally and this is what we're looking at when they completely learn the schedule why even go there at all? Right? It seems illogical except that it's probably the case that animals are were selected for sampling from other food patches, we could call them. Now, we could make it so they spend all their time here. There's a couple ways you could do that. We could put a barrier between the two keys and make it so the animal had to walk all the way to the back of the operant chamber and go all the way back this way. But they don't. They, they screw it. Um, we could throw in a change key. So if you want to pack the other one here, first you've got to pack the change key in the middle. And you've got to pack that five or ten times. You've got to do that? Ah, screw it. I'm not going to do that the extra effort. And the cool thing is, drug-taking behavior, going back to that, follows the matching law. If we take a look at something that's twice as reinforcing as something else, and we give people, or rats, the choice of drugs, they'll mix and match. They really will. Now, any other questions? Any questions about the current schedule, sir? It's kind of neat, actually, because in fact, it's closer to life. Not this is really close to life at all. But think about when you're taking multiple courses and looking at studying behavior. You do that, don't you? One's got one that's got the the test that has bigger possible number of marks, you're going to study more for that one, as a rule. Okay. Now, a concur uh, chain schedule is on the same key, you might have like an FR10 and an FR50, something like that. You might think, well, why would you do that? This is kind of interesting. And it's not that it mimics daily life, but at least we know that we, we have multiple schedules operating, controlling our behavior at a different time. Why would we be interested in one schedule which is then followed by another? Well, it allowed us to find out that behavior follows the schedule in effect at the time, which I said in the post-reinforcement pause. that it's not the previous schedule 
that causes the pause. It's the present schedule, the one that's active right now. And the longer that's it's going to take to get the reinforcement, the longer the post-reinforcement pause. And so doing a, a chain schedule allows people to determine that the post-reinforcement pause in the FR schedule is due to the present schedule, not the previous. So what you do is you go FR10, FR30, FR10, FR30. The animal learns that. They can learn that pretty easily. And it shows you what the, you take a look at the shape, and the post-reinforcement pause is determined by the schedule that's active now. Okay, let's talk about some applications of some of this stuff. Um, I talked with this the other day. The work with autistic children, uh, the sort of behavioral, uh, behavior management stuff that's done with kids with, with autism, is really striking. It's exactly like what you see in all the stuff we just talked about. So the first thing you do is you prompt the behavior. So what you're doing there is you're actually either doing the behavior with the kid hand over hand, sometimes you'll see that kind of thing, or you'll literally will take their head and focus it in a certain direction. Right? And when you do that, you also say what you're doing. One of the things most people don't realize is even non-verbal autistic people, they all can understand, not all of them, a large number of them can understand what you're saying. They just don't speak. Right. It's probably the case that about fifty percent of people with autism have are you could classify them as, as mentally retarded, basically. But the other fifty percent aren't. They're just hooked up wrong. Just not hooked up properly. There's something going on. Right. So at first you do the prompts, but you got to fade the prompts away because you you can't always have someone standing there going, "Look over here. Look over here. Look over here. Look over here." So you, you start to fade that away, just like you do. It's, it's shaping by successive approximations. It's exactly the same thing you do with a rat that you're trying to teach to push a bar. It's literally exactly the same thing. Okay? And you're going to use secondary reinforcers here. You're going to start out with... You're going to start out with... Something that the, the kid has great thinks has great value, like a candy. Some of the early stuff that was done, they would literally use um, a spoonful of ice cream as a reinforcer. But they pair it with verbal praise. Eventually, verbal praise maintains the behavior. And the nice thing is, you don't have to do the verbal praise. In fact, you shouldn't do the verbal praise every time the kid does the behavior. And then you can eventually get to the point where you can get a kid. I, will, I am amazed at watching my son in class compared to the way he behaves anywhere else. When I've watched him in school, he's an entire, it's like he's an entirely different person. And that's because he's had educational assistants that know about this stuff and have training in um, uh, applied behavior analysis. And I can watch him sit in class and you would not know, you would not be able to pick out the autistic kid. 
He puts his hand up to ask questions. He tries to participate. Many of his questions somehow get around to plane crashes, but uh, he, he participates in class. He sits there. He pays attention. Right. Now, he does have moments where he just has to get up and walk around, so they, he gets up and goes to the computer and just goes and checks something out, wearing a pair of headphones, comes back to calm himself down if he's getting too excited. Uh, things like that. But watching him in class, is, it's like he's... The teacher said, we get an email from the teacher every week, which is very cool. You know, oh, he's such a delight. It's like, you hey, try living with him. Um, so, watching something, yeah, John's not very severely autistic, but I've seen other severely autistic, I've seen severely autistic kids that, are, that he knows. And it's amazing watching, once they start getting the behavior therapy, how they can learn things like sitting still, which is an exceedingly hard thing for some people. So, like, I don't care, for example, if when he's, if he's walking around the house, he's going, that's who he is. But I tell him, you can't really do that in the world, because people are going to think you're weird. You know, so we'll walk at home, and he'll cover his ear, and I'll say, what are you doing? And of course, his response usually is, I'm just being autistic. <laughs> <laughs> he's rather self-aware. Um, it's, uh, and I would say, why do you do that? He goes, it feels good. Okay, I understand, but not, you know, it's okay in school. You don't, you don't do it in school, do you? And he laughs at me, like, I wouldn't do that in school. <laughs> but now we're out of school, and I'm walking down the street. If I'm all got all this pent-up energy, I'm just going to do this. Uh, okay, for a time. Right. But he's learned because of, basically because of, 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 of operant conditioning. Yeah, sorry. But, like, my mom's one of those EAs. Yeah. And she does, like, respite care as well. Yes, yeah, when, sure. When we, um, I mean, like, uh, when I think when I was in elementary school, she started, and I never understood why she would tell the little boy that she was with to stop doing this. I was like, well, why? It's not harming anybody. She goes, well, then he's going to go to school because she knows him from school, and he's going to, like, learn that it's okay for him to do that around her or something like that. And yeah. I just never got why she would always stop him. Yeah. Because it wasn't harming anybody. No. But every single time, no, like, put your hands on your lap. Yeah. And it's and it's funny because they can learn that kind of stuff, uh, and that's not easy because that's that's something that they do to make themselves feel better, to calm themselves down. Autism is an executive functioning disorder, and, and, and it's so things that to us are trivial and we don't even notice. Things like the ability to put everything together into one experience is so easy for us. For them, like and knowing where your hands are is just not something you've ever thought about. But if you don't exactly know where your hands are, you start doing this. That's, I've talked to people that are pretty high-functioning, and that's basically what they tell me. Is it's like, it, makes, it reminds me of where my hands are. That should be the hand flapping. And the hand flapping is actually in the DSM. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the diagnostic criteria for being classified on, uh, on the autism spectrum. So it's interesting that it is really hard. I've, I've watched, I know a guy who's probably 26, 27 years old. I've seen him the bus now and then. Uh, and I, he's, his dad uh, used to work here at the university, so that's why I know him and we've talked to his parents a lot. And I see him on the bus and he wants to do it, but he sits on his hand. And somebody's obviously told him, when you, if you're out in public, just sit on your hands. You know, things like that. Um, so it's that kind of thing. Or, I mean, the other thing is, Inappropriate social behavior, right? 
So that's one of the problems that a lot of people with autism have because they don't understand social behavior. Things, social norms are hard to te- are, are hard for us. They're trivial. We just they just happen. With somebody like my son, he has to be taught explicitly through reinforcement that you can't just walk up to people and ask, random people and ask them questions. Right? It just it just isn't done. It, maybe the world would be a better place if it was done, but it isn't. So that that's not how society works. Right. So he's got to be taught there are people you can ask questions to. That's a discriminative stimulus, by the way. It's a three-term contingency. You can ask me a question. You will get a response. But you can't just walk up to everybody. Right? He used to be really into cars. Uh, He can still tell you what make, model of car you had one year. You just can't. You just look at it and go, that's a 1974 Plymouth Reliant. No, they didn't make Reliance in 74, but whatever. Um, he was in swimming lessons about, oh God, when was that? Probably 2007. And I would take him on every day. And after his first lesson, he walked up to the instructor in the pool. He just walked up and said, what kind of vehicle do you drive? <laughs> the guy said, a red truck. I said, dude, you're going to need a, you need a lot more detail. <laughs> and if I asked him right now, I, I don't want to text him, because. but if I did, if I texted him right now and said, what kind of did your swimming instructor have? First of all, I forget the guy's name, and he'd remember his name. And then he'd tell me. Um, but he's learned things like, for example, to say, excuse me, when he walks by people. But now, now you have to get to the discrimination part, because he says it when he walks by anyone. So I don't have to say, not now. You, don't have to, you say it when you're going to bump into somebody. Not just everybody you walk by. So you've got to teach that behavior, which is to say, excuse me, but you also have to, because, you know, he's in a school and it's busy, but he also has to learn that everybody you walk by in the mall, you don't go, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Right? So you have to, it has to be very precise. And just like when you're training a rat, and I know that sounds kind of callous, but it isn't. Because you do this with your kid, your normal kids, yes, I said normal, with your normal kids too, you just, you don't have to be quite as explicit about it. Um, just like with a rat, when you screw up and give a reinforcer for when it, when it was almost touching the bar, you could screw everything up and they have to almost start over from zero. And it's constantly the case, for example, if he doesn't get his way, he can get to the point where he's going to have a meltdown which is not a pretty thing to watch in a 13-year-old, and you saw how big my son is, and he's a big, strong boy. Uh, he's never hurt anybody, but I have the feeling that if he ever figures out he could kick my ass, there could be some, some issues. Um, but when he does get upset, the last thing to do is give him attention. And it's hard to hear somebody who's 13 years old has a voice who's bigger and deeper than mine who's screaming. you got to go, yeah, whatever, good, have fun. Just let it go. Ignore it. Don't reinforce it, right? And it's hard to do that. Because as a parent, you know, it's like, oh, poor kid. It's like, what? What do you mean? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't make enough ribs? That's what you're getting upset about? The interesting thing is, one of the things he's learned is, well, we'll talk about this in a second, negative reinforcement, which is when you remove something positive from somebody to maintain behavior. So I'll, you know, you can't play video games for a couple of days, things like that. He'll, he'll immediately start listing things when he does something wrong. I don't like my little pony anymore, he'll say to me. 
It's like, no, you don't say that. It's just a lie. <laughs> you know, I'm going to delete all these apps. And say, don't, don't, don't. You're going to want to download them again. Just don't. Right? So he's actually learned that there are, there's consequences to his behavior. So it's interesting stuff. We've talked about token economies in school settings. Um, we see them a lot in school settings. Um, still, we see kids work for stars. Right? They'll work for a stamp on a test. But you can get even more elaborate token economies. And these, these used to be used a lot in uh, psychiatric hospitals where good behavior gets reinforced and bad behavior gets fine. So you, let's say you have a person who's a schizophrenic and you want them to interact with people appropriately. When they smile, they get a poker chip. And the poker chips themselves... Secondary reinforcers that conventionally be exchanged for more time using the TV, recreational things, or it used to be in, in psychiatric facilities, just cigarettes. It was all about cigarettes. It isn't anymore, but, uh, but it used to, I remember touring a psychiatric facility when I took an abnormal psych class, and it just smelled like cigarettes, because that's, what else can they do? Smoke cigarettes. So that's what everybody did, was smoke and eat chocolate bars. So you end up basically setting up an economy. Uh, this is less common than it used to be because it's, it's now apparently violates people's rights somehow. I don't understand how, um, but they're less common than they used to be. Yeah, people get upset about things that they shouldn't be upset about because it, in fact, is successful. The thing they get upset about, in fact, is the token economy will not be active anymore out in the world. That's a real concern. So when the person does get leave the psychiatric facility and they're a paranoid schizophrenic, now, they should be taking their medication, too. But not everybody that they smile at gives them a quarter. <laughs> the world doesn't work that way, right? So I can see that argument, but I've heard the other argument you hear about is it's manipulation. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what it is. <coughs> so that's the point of therapy. You're trying to change people's behavior. So I don't think that's my... But I've heard that argument. That's all I'm saying. But the argument that the, the, the token economy will not be active out in the world, it's true. Now, it doesn't matter as much in a school setting where kids might work for stars or, or, or uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, stickers or whatever. I know that, oh God, what school was that? I think that I think it was back in Newfoundland where the kids were divided up into different groups and the group that had the most, you know, positive dealios would get chocolate bars at the end of the week. Right? They couldn't eat them in class, all that stuff wasn't mean. And then later on the teacher was doing things like giving everybody prizes when they had the class at a good week. That's a that's a good idea. That's a token economy. That's a token economy. Right? Yeah. I remember we had stickers on our French folders. Yep. And I don't know what we got them for. Like, I don't know. The sticker was the secondary or Like, I have no idea what we traded them in for now. All I remember was the sticker. Yeah, well, I have no doubt about that, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what I buy things with, but I have money in my pocket. Yeah. I was going to say about the chocolate bars. We had that in our one teacher. Like, our desks were all together, and whoever, like, there's different groups of desks. And yep. If a student got in trouble for whatever, that... Yes, that group will get like a S kind of thing, and yeah. whoever had the best, like cleanest desks and stuff, at the end of the week got chocolate bars. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the only problem I have that with that is you know the, the sins of the other people's sins shouldn't shouldn't be your problem. But yeah. um, 
I also I think the best thing to do in these situations is not to do the finding thing. The best thing to do is in fact do a token economy where you're simply doing reinforcement because it, it, it's easier to do and it maintains behavior really well, right? Uh, Maddie took French immersion and uh, told great when in different and she spoke French better than most of the teachers already, but because she grew up when she was little, her mom was mostly literate. French. Grade two. The teacher set up a token economy. The first part of it's great, sure, reinforce kids for speaking French, but find them for speaking English. And I went in and I was livid to the principal because I said, you know, there's nothing wrong with speaking English. It's but encouraging to speak French. And you know, this works better. And I was explaining all this stuff. And I said, I actually am kind of an expert here. And I just want to get this out there that then the teacher got mad at Maddie. And Maddie didn't tell us until like we moved here. And I will find this Madame Girardin one day. <laughs> if you're out there, lady. In a few years, Maddie's going to have all kinds of letters after her name, and you don't have any. Um, so token economies work really well. And the, the nice thing is, the finding part can be part of it, but typically you don't even need it to maintain good behavior. You don't really even need it. There's a lot of applications in industrial organizational systems. Um, IO psych is interesting because it's basically the idea, it's, it's basically workplace psychology. In my younger days, I called it, uh, I used to think of it sort of jokingly as the uh, uh, bourgeoisie maintaining control of the proletariat, but not a lot of you know a lot about Marxism. Do you? Um, as I said, I was kidding. But how do we maintain productive behavior? How do we maintain productivity? Not just by paying people. Right? You can pay people a lot and they still don't work well. Paying is not a good motivator. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it, that's the reason most people go to work, but it's not the only reason people go to work. Right? Exactly. So why not give people rewards, non-pay rewards? These can be very small things or big things. They can be just the smallest thing as telling someone they've done a good job. Right? It can be as simple as having people as giving credit for ideas. Right? And what do you do? You tell people, look, when you come up with an idea, submit it, and if we use it, we're, and if we save any money, you get a share of the savings. And that's actually a pretty common thing in most companies, in a lot of companies, not big companies. If you come up with an idea that actually saves the company money and it works, We'll give you some of the money because we saved money already anyway, right? And I know that uh, the car manufacturers do this, for example, and have for years. Where, if a worker, because who knows better about how they build things than the guys that build things, right? So when they say, you know, we have to switch, we why don't we all use the same kind of screws for this, and it saves the company a million dollars? Maybe you give the guy a hundred grand. That maintains behavior really well. Right? Giving people breaks during the day. And I don't mean the ones that are just required under the collective agreement, that kind of thing, but actually just giving people a break. Right? Yeah, Lucas. Uh, the thing with, with pay mm -hmm. is that it's not really based on how well you do your work. It's, it's based on time. Do, it's the fact that you do the work is all it's based on. It's yeah. not about how exactly, which makes it a rather poor motivator, right? Yeah. And it doesn't... It doesn't maintain behavior that well. 
I worked just as hard at this job when I was getting paid 30% of what I'm paid now. Which, looking back, I shouldn't have worked so hard. Yeah, right? But I do this because there's other, it's not just it's my job. But yeah, I'm paid based on showing up and doing things. I'm not paid based on how good I am. And in fact, paying people based on how on performance often doesn't work very well, which is a bizarre thing to think of. Yeah. Behavior therapy in general, really. So we talked extensively about uh, people with autism, but I've got a, uh, not just experience there, I just interest. Um, and it's, it's a really well-known set of cases. But behavior therapy in general, um, for maintaining good behavior and making bad behavior less likely. And think about this. If I reinforce you for doing behavior I like, you are by definition not doing behavior I don't like. Right? So the more, if I can get you to do more stuff I like, you can't be doing more, you've got to be doing less stuff I don't like because you're spending more time doing stuff I like. I've had this argument many times with parents who hit their kids and I say, you know, I, don't, I never hit my kids and I was never hit either and my mother was never, I think my dad might have been. Um, we were never. But it's interesting because I, and I'm like, it's funny, my kids turned out just fine. <laughs> we turned out, my brother and I, my sister, we turned out okay. We do okay. Parents would reinforce this. For, I don't, they didn't know what they were doing about that at the time, but they would reinforce this for good behavior. And then you don't do bad behavior. I'm not saying we didn't do any bad behavior. Right? There was stuff, most of it my brother was involved in. <laughs> the case. That's usually him. It wasn't me. I was the first kid. The first kid, it's like, there are rules, I will follow them. And the parents are really strict. Right? I'd go to bed at 9 until I was like 15. You know? Not quite, but close. My brother, different. My, my sister, for example. My dad would take my brother out to see bands at bars when he was seven, when my brother was 17, because my brother was a musician. I was not allowed around alcohol until I was like 19. I think I had a beer once with my dad. We finished building a deck. My mom used to buy my sister liquor when she was underage. So lucky they didn't have another kid. Mom would have been scoring H for them. <laughs> Dropping acid with the kids. I don't know. Always tougher on the first kid. So most of the people, you know, but like, I mean, in all honesty, it's easier to maintain behavior that way. So when you're doing therapeutic things, a lot of times, you don't have to worry as much about punishing behavior, which is what we'll talk about next time. But you do have to worry about maintaining the good behavior and making it more likely. Yeah, please. I was going to say something like that, too. Like you're not allowed to do something when you're 12, and then you turn 13 or something, and you're allowed to do it. But then since you're allowed to do it, your younger brother's allowed to do it. Now. I know. When he's 12. Oh, yeah. You're the oldest kid as well. Yeah. See? It's a hellish nightmare for us. <laughs> this is what's caused years of psychological problems. <laughs> I, I, well, probably not just that, but that's part of it. I blame basically my mom and my dad. And dad's, dad's dead now, so most of mom, it's all to you. Uh, fix it. She didn't listen. I think she has listened. But As my dad once said when I said, I'm podcasting my lectures, he said, why would I want to listen to that? If I want to talk to you, I'll call you. <laughs> 
You think I'm direct and a little intense? You should have met my father. Daniel, and then we'll, pa- we'll pack it in. Yeah, I recall uh, when I worked for a call center, mm-hmm. here it is, uh, when I get on the phone, get on French, my, uh, tone, my tone of voice changes. Yeah, yeah. And I get, got, kept getting told, oh, you're too loud on the phone. And people, you think you're screaming. You don't have to scream at them. It's like, I don't. Right. Well, I mean, so this and then is the- I tried to control my tone, and they say, you sound like a robot. <laughs> but I mean, what they should have been doing is dispensing small amounts of food. Uh, that, would have, that would have maintained the behavior. On that note, we'll pack it in for today and uh, we'll talk about uh, oh, avoidance and stuff like that, uh, which is probably the hardest part of this stuff. Thanks, guys. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. 
Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.